For many in the conspiracy world, a few unknowns and coincidences can be enough to get the old gears a-grinding and a comprehensive and complicated narrative begins to form, seemingly of its own accord. It feels less like a story and more like revelation. Those that like to debunk will say, but that's all crazy, it doesn't hang together, and besides, things like that don't happen in the real world. But that's not necessarily true. Take the tale of the Lockheed F-104 Starfighter, a sprawling tale that involves American military hardware, business malfeasance, more than a brush with far-right extremists in several countries, the collapse of the entire Japanese government, a modern kamikaze attack, the murder of a Transylvanian banker by a bag lady, MK Ultra brainwashing, CIA-trained death squads in South America, and more. And it's all 100% true. Because the world is weird. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Widowmaker. On March 4, 1954, the Lockheed XF-104 had its first flight. This was a lightweight single-engine supersonic jet interceptor. The idea was to create a versatile combat aircraft that could rival the Soviet MiGs, which had sort of slapped around American planes during the Korean War. With a body shaped like a missile and thin, mid-mounted trapezoidal wings, maybe this would fit the bill. The aircraft also had a pilot ejection system developed by Stanley that ejected down rather than up for a quicker manual release option and gravity assist. Now, the whole plane was a prototype, really, and came about from conversations with pilots during and after the conflict in Korea about what they would like to have in a plane. Only two of the XF-104s were ever built, one to test aerodynamics and one to test the armament-carrying capabilities for such a light, fast plane. However, both of these prototypes would be destroyed during testing. Yet this plane would become the template for the Lockheed F-104 all-weather fighter-bomber, nicknamed the Starfighter, that was supposed to give air superiority to forces that deployed it. However, initial tests showed some flaws in the design. It tended to pitch up about 15 degrees, which would then alter the attack angle by as much as 60 degrees. At the same time, it would spin while dropping 12 to 15,000 feet per minute. Essentially, the plane became a, quote, missile with a man in it, which would almost certainly result in the plane crashing. 
Lockheed tried to fix this with a control stick, but that was super finicky, and then other problems were observed, like the tail sometimes started fluttering, which would then occasionally result in the tail just simply tearing off of the aircraft, resulting in another crash. Wing-mounted fuel tanks also caused oscillations, ripping the wing off the craft in flight. Temperature changes, like going from, say, a warm parking spot on the ground to the frigid air high above, would sometimes cause the engine to stall. Combine all this with that downward-facing ejection seat, and you had a pretty dicey situation for pilots. So they fiddled with it, making a few changes, like the ejection seat now shot upwards, the fuel tank had to be filled with substances in a certain order, things like this, but other problems were not addressed and instead simply rebranded as features. Like the fact that it didn't have a modulated afterburner meant that it really could only work in combat mode at Mach 1 or Mach 2.2. Well, said Lockheed, I mean, that is fast really fast and such speeds will just wow and intimidate enemies. The fact that it couldn't really attack slower than that was kind of overlooked. But Lockheed doggedly kept at it and the first Starfighter went into service in the US in February 1958. It was deployed in a live theater situation in September that same year during the second Taiwan Strait crisis when China started bombing the stuffing out of a couple of disputed islands near Taiwan. The supersonic starfighters were used basically as a deterrent and some officers on the ground said they were probably a large part of the ceasefire that got brokered in early October. Starfighters were used again in the 1961 Berlin crisis. Again, the planes did not directly engage enemy planes, but acted as a deterrent, being very fast, having extremely quick reaction times, and performing numerous intercepts. These were the fastest planes in the sky, and West Germany said they'd take some, buying 309 F-104s and later another 607 for a total of 916 starfighters. But... The darn thing still had problems, and between 1961 and 1989, the Germans suffered 298 crashes, killing 108 of their pilots, as well as eight American Air Force pilots. By the mid-1970s, the German press had dubbed the 104s the Widowmaker. Problematic for Lockheed, since they were getting more orders from other NATO allies like Italy and Turkey, as well as further afield like Pakistan and even NASA. The Starfighter was a good plane by some measurements. It was the first ever to hold world records in both speed and altitude, and damn, they were fast, able to sustain speeds of Mach 2. But yes, several of the problems still had not been corrected, including one that developed later with the landing gear that resulted in a surprising number of pilot ejections. They were a bit like an Apple product. When they worked, they worked great, but when they broke, they were bricked and they broke more often than most would have liked. Pay to play. Instead of addressing the ongoing problems with the Starfighter, Lockheed decided to go another route. They started bribing officials. In West Germany back in 1961, allegedly to the tune of $10 million to Minister of Defense Franz Josef Strauss and his conservative Christian political party, the CSU, more payments were made to various officials there throughout the 1970s, with documents getting, quote, lost whenever investigations were initiated. In 1975, Lockheed had to pay the equivalent of $1.2 million to 60 widows and dependents of 32 German pilots who had needlessly died in crashes. They paid the money, but one of the points of the deal was that they did not have to officially admit liability. You know, they were just handing out that money to be uh, nice. 
and they could afford it. The Starfighter was rather competitively priced at $850,000 apiece, but Germany's total orders alone far exceeded any payouts the aerospace company had to make. Germany's order alone came to about $778 million. So bribery became something of a staple in their dealings. In 1978, revelations about Lockheed bribes of key Christian Democrat and socialist politicians resulted in the resignation of the president of West Germany. Bribery also went on in the Netherlands in the early 1970s and in Saudi Arabia between 1970 and 1975, totaling at least $106 million. And then there were the weird events that occurred in the land of the rising sun in what would come to be known as Japan's Watergate. Interestingly enough, this happened around the same time as the American Watergate. There is clearly something in the air in the 1970s. And not just the Starfighter aircraft. Lockheed decided their man on the ground would be Yoshio Kodama, a right-wing ultra-nationalist and one of the most powerful backroom brokers in the world of the 20th century. He was what's known in Japan as a karamaku, which basically means fixer, and he was a real sweet guy. Even before the war, Kodama was making a name for himself in extremist nationalist circles. In the 1920s, he joined a far-right secret society called the Genyosha, or the Black Ocean Society. This group was founded by an ex-samurai and owner of mining companies with the aim of restoring the old feudal system to Japan. They brought in other former members of the samurai class as well as people from organized crime conducting assassinations of liberal politicians and foreigners. They really hated the Chinese secret societies, of which there were quite a number, so they started a chain of brothels across China that could be used as meeting places as well as places to gather intelligence and serve as opportunities to blackmail people opposed to them. They even had a special school to train ladies of the evening in the arts of seduction, pleasure, and intelligence gathering. The Black Ocean Society also wanted Korea to become part of Japan, so they secretly had a bunch of topographical maps made of that country, and they were probably the ones behind the brutal 1895 assassination of Korean Empress Queen Min, whose body they violated and then burned, leaving only a single finger bone remaining. The information network of brothels proved useful to the Japanese military during the First Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95 and the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05. In 1905, Korea was officially annexed by Japan and in 1910, the Black Ocean Society decided to go at least semi-legit, forming the Greater Japan Production Political Party to combat encroaching trade unionism and socialism. They gained even more power, and they were one of the main proponents for creating a national parliament. And then once that happened, they got members elected to key positions and became a large part of the mainstream political scene. This was their status when Kodama joined them in the 20s. But, you know, maybe by then they become too prosaic for his tastes. So he also joined another, newer secret society, the Kenkokkai, or National Foundation Society. These were Nazi sympathizers who thought that people were too stupid to be allowed control over their own daily lives, and so the state should rule supreme in all aspects of society, right down to telling people what to eat and how to dress. 
This group attracted a former police chief, as well as members from the ultra-nationalist paramilitary Black Dragon Society, who later infiltrated the Ethiopian peace movement and even operated in the African-American community in the United States. The Kenkokai beat up strikers, ran a shrill anti-left newspaper, and in 1928 bombed the Soviet embassy. Kodama liked their style and became a member in 1929. He got himself arrested that same year when, during a parade, he tried to pass a letter to Emperor Hirohito Showa that begged him to force more patriotism on the public. Kodama went to prison for six months, because I guess one just did not approach the emperor like that, but he got out, got in trouble again, went back to jail, and then got out again in 1932. So he promptly started his own secret society, Dokoritsu Shaninsha, or the Independent Youth Society, who intended to assassinate politicians viewed as too moderate in their views. They also sold opium in Korea and Manchuria to weaken the populaces there, and working with another group, the Tenkokai, or Society for Heavenly Action, managed to kill three politicians who were calling for Japan, China, and Korea to pursue independent but peaceful paths. When police caught wind of their plan to kill the prime minister, Kodama was again arrested. When he got out in 1937, he started working for the Imperial Japanese as a spy in China, infiltrating various Chinese triads during World War II. This enabled him to form a smuggling network that became one of the largest in the world. Often he would go into occupied territories in places like Manchuria and just steal as much stuff as he could and then turn around and sell it in Japan for extremely high prices. Despite his claims that his activities were all patriotic in nature, he became one of the richest men in Asia by 1945. Later, he would be key in forming the Kantokai, an organization made of seven Yakuza groups who agreed to share power and wealth between them. That is Yoshio Kodama, and that is the guy who Lockheed thought would best represent their interests in selling their very fast but very dangerous starfighter planes to Japan. To get money to Kodama, Lockheed employed the services of the Diak Pereira Group, a company started by Transylvanian Nicholas Lewis Diak. During the war, Diak had been an OSS agent, setting up a front company to run various operations, and then used that company as a CIA front during the Cold War that followed. In 1960, he created a subsidiary called Goldline International, who became the largest storefront retailer of gold in the world before they went bankrupt in the 1980s. In New York, where he was based, he was known as the James Bond of money. I want to suck your bank account. In a fantastic article on Salon.com, writers Mark Ames and Alexander Zajcik say, if Nicholas Diak had never existed, Graham Greene would have tried and failed to invent him. Diak was born in Transylvania, which had once been part of Hungary, but then which passed later into Romanian control. He got a PhD in economics, worked for the Hungarian government, and then in the League of Nations. When World War II broke out, he escaped to the U.S. and became a paratrooper in 1942. The OSS recognized his value, and he started working on a number of covert missions, including an ambitious one in which oil executives would be dressed up as Romanian firefighters and dropped behind enemy lines to conduct sabotage. Now, while this particular plan never got off the ground, so to speak, many others did. 
He ended up recruiting guerrilla fighters against Japan in Burma near the end of the war, and when everything ended in Burma, the Japanese commander surrendered by presenting Diok personally with his own samurai sword. Diok kept this as a souvenir. After the war, he was in charge of U.S. intelligence in Hanoi, supplying the French with weapons and later helping shape American strategy in Vietnam while working with the likes of William Casey, William Colby, and James Angleton. The Americans also gave him money to start a front operation in Hawaii, which pretended to be a flower export business but was actually used for covert operations. This company grew, becoming a global bank that specialized in foreign currency exchange markets. This company, Dioc Pereira, hired a Spanish former priest as bagman in the Lockheed Kodama deal that shuttled $8.3 million to Japan in cardboard boxes labeled oranges, which he would take on flights between the bank's Hong Kong branch and Tokyo. Despite this need for secrecy and such goings-on, well, a lot of people in the underworld like to brag, and eventually, word got out about the massive amounts of money being sent to Kodama in orange boxes so that he could bribe government officials to accept contracts for Lockheed planes. Plenty of people got swept up in the scandal, including the finance minister, the chief of the Japanese Self-Defense Air Force, higher-ups at the Marubeni Corporation, and members of the Liberal Democratic Party who were paid off specifically to buy the F-104 Starfighter death planes. Oh, and the Prime Minister also personally received payments. All told, Lockheed dropped about $3 million. It all came out and Kadama was at the center of it. The public was outraged, calling on him to publicly commit seppuku for the shame he brought on the nation by selling out to foreign business interests. Not to mention the hypocrisy of such a Japan-first ultra-naturalist. Yeah, Japan-first, unless there's a sizable payout for me, it would seem. Kodama, of course, scoffed at the idea of killing himself publicly or otherwise, and instead lived a life of luxury. Well, this enraged native Tokyo man, Mitsuyasu Meno, who was also an ultra-nationalist who followed the ideas of Yukio Mishima. Mishima, back in 1970, had tried to get the Japanese military to stage a coup against the government. Now, Meno knew Kodama since they were both in the same political circles, and Meno had even been to a 1971 meeting of hard-right nationalists at the Okura Hotel in Tokyo, where those assemblers agreed to work towards overthrowing the current government, bringing back pre-World War imperial policies, and making the new national anthem of Japan a song called Song of the Race, written by Kodama himself. One of the ways that Menu paid the bills was by acting in what were known as pink films, also called Roman porno films. These are softcore porn movies. He appeared in 20 such works, including Tokyo Deep Throat, a rather shameless ripoff of the American hit, and Tokyo Emmanuel, which was the first Japanese pink film to be seen in British cinemas, and was also the first time he received an actual screen credit. And he was also a pilot. Meino thought that Kodama had betrayed the country, betrayed his far-right ideals, and broken the old samurai code of Bushido that they all pretended that they lived under. So, on March 23, 1976, he and two friends went to the airport to take pictures of themselves dressed like kamikaze pilots. Meino rented a Piper Cherokee single-prop plane for himself and another plane for his pals, and they flew around the city for a while snapping photos. The friends thought it was all part of a film that Meno wanted to make. 
As they were flying over the Setagaya district, where Kodama lived, they circled for a bit, and then Meneo suddenly dove his plane towards the millionaire's home, shouting into his radio, Long live the emperor, before striking the top floor of the mansion. Meno was killed instantly, and a fire started that injured two servants. But Kodama was recovering from a recent stroke in a completely different part of the house, and so was totally unharmed. However, his bodyguards were so keyed up over the unexpected incident, an airplane coming out of nowhere and crashing into the building, they were unsure what was going on and who they could trust, so they physically attacked journalists who showed up to report on the scene. When the newspeople complained to the police, the police told them to, quote, not excite the young men. But reports spread and people started word-of-mouthing it here and there, and pretty soon, before you know it, various versions were floating around Tokyo, including into the underground, and soon 20 far-right supporters showed up in a crowd thinking that the law was finally coming for their hero, Kodama. So they attacked the police, and many people on both sides were injured in the fighting. When it had all quieted down, law enforcement entertained the idea that maybe the whole thing had been part of some elaborate, coordinated conspiracy, but later they dropped that line of inquiry. Now, some members of the public were sympathetic to Mano. The Lockheed scandal had been a massive embarrassment for the country, and many people felt like the authorities weren't doing enough to curtail corruption. Other people raised eyebrows at the resurrection of past imperial Japanese attitudes and the specter of Japanese ultranationalism. As an editorial in the newspaper, Manichi Shumbum put it, quote, It is imaginable that a young German, not a wartime officer, would commit suicide in a Nazi uniform shouting Heil Hitler? Coming more than 30 years after the end of World War II, Meno's kamikaze flight revived the ghosts that the Japanese wanted to forget. Now, while the dive bombing didn't kill him, Kodama was still old and in poor health. He was charged with tax evasion for money he had made during the whole Lockheed debacle and then died of a stroke in 1977 before that could go to trial. The investigations into the Lockheed bribes continued. Former Prime Minister Kakwe Tanaka, who was now just an MP, was tried, found guilty in 1983, and sentenced to four years in prison as well as getting himself a hefty fine. However, he simply refused to abide by the court's decision, saying he would stay in his position in Parliament as long as he had supporters. So, meh. For a month, the Japanese Diet, which is what their Parliament is called, debated about what they should do, so Tanaka's hand-picked replacement for PM, Yoshihiro Nakasone, dissolved the government and called for a new general election. This would become known as the second Lockheed election. The first one had been back in 1976 when the incumbent PM made investigating the Lockheed misdeeds in the first place as part of his platform. Nakasone won big this time around. Tanaka got to keep his seat on the diet and Nakasone put six of Tanaka's pals in the cabinet. But... Nakasone also said that, you know, maybe a new code of ethics was needed, and this caused a rift in the party because Tanaka rather thought that he was still sort of in charge and that Nakasone would be very happy simply remaining his mouthpiece. But then, before Tanaka could do anything about it, he had a stroke, went to hospital, recovered but was half paralyzed, lost a court appeal that he'd had pending, was arrested, posted bail, and then appealed to the Supreme Court. While that august body was debating about what to do, his health continued to decline and he retired from politics in 1989, finally dying in 1993, having served no time in jail. 
You've got yours. Now we go back to Nicholas Diak, the guy who Lockheed had hired to get the money to Japan. A 44-year-old mentally ill homeless woman named Lois Lang came to New York on November 18, 1985, walked into Dayak's office, shot and killed the receptionist with a 38 revolver, and then shot and killed Dayak himself. Now you've got yours, she said to Dayak's corpse. She then took out a camera and started taking pictures of the body. Then she dragged it into Dayak's office by his feet and closed the door behind her. Sometime later, after she'd finished whatever the heck it was she was doing in there, she tried to leave using the elevator but was apprehended by NYPD officers who had finally shown up. During questioning, she rambled on about being an important part of the company and she'd been cheated out of what was rightfully hers. She went into mental institutions where she spent the rest of her life. Now, the company Dayak Pereira had collapsed just before the murders, and it turned out the Lockheed Dirty Dealing was just one small part of many, many criminal enterprises Dayak had been involved with, often on behalf of the CIA. Arkady Kuhlman, who had been in charge of the company's Canada operations, became CEO after the murder. He said he thought the timing was just a little too neat to be coincidence. He maintains to this day that Dayak had become inconvenient for the spooks and they had rubbed him out. Kuhlman later hired private investigators who discovered that Ms. Lang had met with two men from Argentina in Miami before getting on the bus to New York. More about that in a bit. Plus, when she'd been arrested, she uttered the cryptic sentence, He told me I could carry the gun. He? He who? Kuhlman wondered. Plus, how does a homeless schizophrenic manage to get off good shots like that with a pistol like she did? She'd clearly been trained, he said. Kuhlman started working on a book about the whole thing, but never got around to finishing it. Though he claims he's just waiting for certain people to die before telling all. Lang's story is an odd one. She'd once been a beauty queen in Illinois and an athlete teaching women's fencing and tennis at UC Santa Barbara after getting a master's degree in physical education. Sometime in the late 60s, she seemed to deteriorate mentally, complaining of blank spots in her memory and also seeing what she called fakes all around her, meaning people who pretended to be family members or friends, but who were actually imposters replacing the real people they claimed to be. And if this sounds a bit like the onset of paranoid schizophrenia, that's probably because it almost certainly was that. Unable to cope, her husband divorced her in 1970. She told friends that she didn't think were fake, that her husband's former business partner had moved into the place across the street from her, and this guy, along with some, quote, friends, were giving her flying lessons and also teaching her how to shoot guns. Later, she would say that in 1971, this man took her to Dayak's offices in New York, so she'd recognize them later. In 1975, Lang was found naked and catatonic in a hotel in Santa Clara, California. The police gave her over to the Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, where her doctor was Dr. Frederick Melgus, who also had worked at Stanford. Melgus had come up with a number of interesting ideas in psychiatry, including something called future-oriented therapy, but in the mid-1970s, he had mainly worked on drug-induced therapy for the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI International, as it's known today. And SRI would turn out to be one of 419 locations that was used for the CIA's covert MKUltra program, which aimed to perfect brainwashing and mind-control techniques. 
Even though MKUltra was technically shut down in the early 70s, it continued all through till at least 1979, and Lois Lang was in their clutches, if you will, in 1975. Melgus himself had published a paper on how to use drugs and hypnosis to create, quote, dissociative states, which is a fancy way to say manufactured schizophrenia. After whatever treatment Melgus gave her, Lang was released, drifting here and there, getting arrested from time to time for petty crimes. She did manage to hold down one steady job for a short while at Harris Casino in Lake Tahoe, but she lost that job and she ended up drifting up to the University of Washington where she would haunt the campus wearing a Robin Hood hat, doing odd jobs when she could and bouncing in and out of jail and mental institutions. However, she always seemed to have plenty of money. Once police found $800 in her pockets, a surprising amount for a bag lady. Arcaday Kuhlman, who took over Dayak Pereira after Lang shot and killed Dayak, kind of put two and two and two together as he continued to probe the events of November 18, 1985. He finds it striking that 10 years before she killed his business partner and boss, Lois Lang had been in an MK Ultra institution, and that before she got on a bus in Miami to head to New York, she met with two Argentinians, and this really raised eyebrows for him. His private investigators found that they were mobsters, but they may have also had deeper, more nefarious connections. Which brings us around to the shameful story of Operation Condor. 21, 21 years, years of the Condor. Of the Condor. A little bit of history first. Way back in 1823, the President of the United States issued what's now known as the Monroe Doctrine, which basically said the New World, meaning the Americas, and the Old World, meaning Europe, were separate things and should stick to their own areas. Any European attempts to influence events in the Western Hemisphere would be treated by the U.S. as a threat. America essentially claimed sovereignty over what they saw as their backyard. As you can imagine, people in Central and South America weren't super keen on this idea. But later, U.S. presidents affirmed the notion. In 1842, John Tyler extended the Monroe Doctrine to include Hawaii, which he was eyeing enviously. In 1845, James Polk said it also applied to the new concept of manifest destiny, which was that Christians of European extraction had God's permission to take over all of the land between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And yet, the old world continued to kind of do what they wanted to. France took over Mexico for a while, Spain took the Chincha Islands, and Britain consolidated all their holdings, including those in the Western Hemisphere hemisphere like the Falkland Islands into a single empire. So in 1870, President Ulysses S. Grant put his foot down about Europeans meddling across the Atlantic. And at the same time, he also tried to take over the Dominican Republic, but he was unsuccessful. The Republican Secretary of State from Maine, James Blaine, formulated what he called the Big Brother policy to try and get Latin American nations to accept American dominance in exchange for nice free trade agreements. This is probably where George Orwell got the term for his dystopian novel, 1984. And on and on it went through the years. Woodrow Wilson basically said the Monroe Doctrine extended not just to the Western Hemisphere, but in fact the entire world. Even John F. Kennedy reaffirmed that the U.S. had the only say that mattered in the Western Hemisphere, and he used this to justify his approach towards Cuba. During the Cold War, the United States operated very much as if the Monroe Doctrine was some sort of real binding international agreement instead of just being something that they said was true. So this is the attitude America has had towards their cousins to the South. 
After a military coup in Paraguay in 1954 and then another one in Brazil in 1964, the U.S. Army School of the Americas started formulating a plan. A group was formed that met with security folks in Argentina and Uruguay about how to curtail this sort of coup fever that seemed to be gripping the region, as well as stymie any attempts at influence in the area by the USSR. There was talk of maybe monitoring political refugees, but also the idea of creating roaming death squads in Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil that could be used as blunt instruments against any perceived enemies was also workshopped. More coups happened anyway, including one in Chile in 1973 by General Augusto Pinochet, a bona fide fascist. Pinochet liked what the School of the Americas was saying, and so in 1975, while Yoshio Kodama was being paid by a Spanish former priest out of boxes labeled oranges, Pinochet consolidated efforts into Operation Condor with the aim of, quote, eliminating Marxist subversion. The brief was broad and included surveillance, kidnapping, torture, and murder. The targets would be armed militant groups, but also anyone that the state decided was a subversive Marxist, i.e. anybody they wanted. Basically, this was state terrorism, and plenty of other South American governments got in on the action. Like the famous dirty war in Argentina that targeted people who were trying to form unions and social activists and sometimes those people's relatives. This took place in the nine years between 1974 and 1983 and disappeared or killed around 30,000 people. To put that in perspective, that's an average of nine people a day for nine years. Oh yes, and university professors and also nuns were also favorite targets, and children and babies of victims would be confiscated by the government and handed out as gifts to loyal couples. But the Dirty War is just one part of Operation Condor. One of the more infamous tactics was the death flight, where a victim would be flown in a plane or helicopter somewhere and then pushed out of the aircraft, often into the ocean. In late 1977, atypical storm activity caused a number of corpses to wash up on the beaches of Argentina and Chile, damning evidence of governmental crimes, which then had to be further hushed up. All across the region, people were disappearing, often never to be seen again, and sometimes grabbed on the flimsiest of excuses. In one case, during a World Cup match in Argentina in 1978, security forces arrested a female psychologist attending the game. This woman had polio and was in a wheelchair, yet they tortured her with an electric cattle prod for 15 hours to try and get her to divulge the location of one of her patients. It was the patient that they wanted, and she just got in their way. There were also some high-profile assassinations, notably two lawmakers from Uruguay, the former Minister of the Interior of Chile, the former President of Bolivia, and the former Chilean Ambassador to the U.S., Orlando Letelier, who was in a car with a colleague leaving Embassy Row in Washington, D.C. when a car bomb exploded in the vehicle, killing them both. Condor went on until 1989, basically ending when the Berlin Wall fell and the Cold War was over for the most part. All during this time, American secret forces trained death squads in the techniques of torture, developing new ones all the time, and even using South and Central America as testing grounds for new torture techniques to see what did and didn't work. And maybe we would never have known the extent of Condor if it hadn't been for Martin Almada. He was a teacher and dissident from Paraguay who'd been working in Argentina and wrote a thesis on education that the Paraguayan dictator, Alfredo Stroessner, 
did not like. So Amato was arrested and tortured for three and a half years. His wife was also put under house arrest, and sometimes they would make her listen on the phone while they tortured him. Eventually, they tortured her as well, to death. Thanks to Amnesty International, Amada got out of prison in 1977 and fled the country working for UNESCO as a human rights activist. On December 22, 1992, he and a judge went to a neighborhood police station in the capital of Paraguay, Asuncion, to find information on a political prisoner who had fallen afoul of Operation Condor. Down in the basement, they found boxes and boxes and boxes of records, 60,000 documents and 593,000 pages on microfilm, five tons in all. What would become known as the Archives of Terror revealed the fates of many Condor victims from Paraguay, Argentina, Chile, Brazil, Bolivia, and Uruguay. The documents outlined over 400,000 people imprisoned, 30,000 disappeared, and about 50,000 killed, though some estimates have the death toll higher, perhaps as high as 90,000. The Archives of Terror also contained clear evidence of the involvement of U.S. intelligence services, specifically the CIA. Henry Kissinger, who'd been Secretary of State back in the mid-70s, had agreed with a briefing paper he'd been given that said that there was a Third World War happening down south of the American border and that it was a sneaky one that used, quote, subversion to infect the continent with communism with the ultimate goal of wiping out Christianity. The paper argued that because these villains used questionable techniques in pursuit of their evil plans, it was perfectly justified for the forces arrayed against them to do the same thing. Kissinger agreed and was in contact with all of these South American dictators, encouraging them to use any means necessary to speed things up to wipe out all the quote-unquote subversives so that the human rights abuses would stop altogether. And that is just some classic double-think right there. The enemy is committing atrocities, so you need to commit more atrocities so that all atrocities will stop. After the Archives of Terror came out, some U.S. officials found out about Operation Condor and the American involvement and started pushing for it to be shut down, or at the very least for America to get out of it and stop training death and torture squads. But nothing was done, even though Kissinger was no longer part of it all, and all through the administrations of Ford, Carter, and Reagan, and into Bush Sr.'s tenure, it continued. And it probably would have gone on even longer if not for the rather sudden end of the Cold War in the autumn of 1989. Tactics and techniques used during Operation Condor seemed to be pretty effective, and intelligence services from France, the UK, and West Germany actually sent people to Argentina to learn all about how maybe they, too, could deal with left-wing subversives in their own country. Subversive was a lovely idea that came out of the writings of Jean Rousset, who was an expert in psychological warfare, who came up with the modern idea that a subversive never needs to actually do anything, simply thinking a certain way is enough to make them guilty. This European group had gone to South America with the idea of maybe starting a pan-European organization that could coordinate their activities in a similar way to how Condor was working in South America. Fortunately, that never came to be. Now, one of the alleged things going on during Operation Condor was not just physical and mental torture, but perhaps attempts to brainwash people in such a way that they would become assassins when activated by a coded trigger. 
usually a phrase. We know this trope from things like The Manchurian Candidate and even the Marvel films, where Bucky Barnes becomes the Winter Soldier when a string of ten Russian words is read to him in a certain order. Some people thought that perhaps a few of the MK Ultra cells had kind of gone off down to South America to continue their good work. Arkady Kuhlman, the man who took over Diak Pereira after Lang shot and killed Diak in New York, thinks that this is the case. He said that Lang meeting two Argentinian mobsters just before getting on a bus to New York seemed pretty suspect. Plus her brush with the MK Ultra program and plus Diak's working for the CIA all those years. It just seemed to be too many connections to be coincidence. That is certainly what he is darkly hinting at. That somehow, when the Lockheed bribes about the Starfighter aircraft got out of hand, the CIA decided to take out their own asset because he knew too much. Well, that would certainly make a great movie, but there are certainly easier ways to go about shutting Nick Diak up than hunting down a Manchurian candidate who'd been living on the streets for years, giving her a gun and a bus ticket, sending her on her way, trusting that she would actually carry out the very specific assignment she had been given by two South American gangsters that she had never met. And of course, as this podcast shows, all of this information came out anyway, so this extrajudicial killing would have all been for naught in the long run. Now, it's far more likely that truth can be stranger than fiction, as the convoluted tale of the Lockheed 104 Starfighter plane, nicknamed the Widowmaker, makes very clear indeed. Because, as we often say on this podcast, the world is weird. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>